0: homes.com we've done your homework
1: hello and welcome to happier a podcast where we discuss solutions and strategies for making our lives happier this week is our discussion for the happier podcast book club so we will be talking to Ya Jessie about her terrific novel transcendent kingdom I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. To no one's surprise, I am still in my home office right here in New York City. And joining me today is my sister Elizabeth Kraft, my sister the sage.
0: That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A. And Gretch, you know, this is the first book club I've ever been in, and I am loving it. Okay, <laughs> we're the first. <laughs> and Gretch, before we dive into our discussion about Transcendent Kingdom, we want to announce our 300th episode is coming up. It'll be a very special episode, 300. And as we always do every 100th episode, we are yes. doing an Ask Us Anything yeah, so send
1: us in your questions. It can be anything from the transcendent to the trivial. And so um, mm-hmm. send them in, and uh, we'll do that for episode 300. And now our book club. We have been so looking forward to this conversation with Ya Jesse. Last year, we launched our Happier Podcast book club, and today we will talk about our next choice, the novel Transcendent Kingdom by Ya Jesse. And here's her official bio. Yeah, Jessie was born in Ghana and raised in Huntsville, Alabama. She holds a BA in English from Stanford University and an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which if you don't know your writers' workshop is an extremely prestigious uh, writers' workshop, where she held a dean's graduate research fellowship. She lives in
0: Brooklyn. Transcendent Kingdom has generated a huge amount of buzz. It was an instant New York Times bestseller and has met with rave reviews. Here's the description. Yah Jesse's stunning follow-up to her acclaimed national bestseller, Homegoing, is a powerful, raw, intimate, deeply layered novel about a Ghanaian family in Alabama. Gifty is a six-year PhD candidate in neuroscience at the Stanford University School of Medicine, studying reward-seeking behavior in mice and the neural circuits of depression and addiction. Her brother was a gifted high school athlete who died of a heroin overdose after an ankle injury left him hooked on Oxycontin. Her suicidal mother is living in her bed. Gifty is determined to discover the scientific basis for the suffering she sees all around her. But even as she turns to the hard sciences to unlock the mystery of her family's loss, she finds herself hungering for her childhood faith and grappling with the evangelical church in which she was raised, whose promise of salvation remains as tantalizing as it is elusive. Transcendent Kingdom is a deeply moving portrait of a family of Ghanaian immigrants ravaged by depression and addiction and grief, a novel about faith, science, religion, love. Exquisitely written, emotionally searing, this is an exceptionally powerful follow-up to Jesse's phenomenal debut.
1: Yes, and as uh, mentioned in her official description, Ya yeah, Jesse's debut novel, Going, also received a huge amount of attention. And I must say, I loved it too. And it's very interesting uh, because it's a very different kind of novel from Transcendent Kingdom. And she's such a young writer. It's interesting to see that she has so much range. Yes. Welcome, Ya.
2: Yeah. Hi. Hi, thank you so much.
1: Now, in these strange times, we have to ask you, where,
2: where are you right now physically? Right now I am in Brooklyn, New York, oh. in
1: Park Slope, kind of close to the park. Wonderful. So you're a fellow New Yorker like me. Now, so we love the book, uh, and I wanted to start by asking about the title, because I always love titles and knowing how books get their titles. So obviously the transcendent kingdom is the kingdom of God, and there's also the kind of taxonomy, the science of the kingdom. And then Gifty herself talks about what a science teacher told her about how humans were the only animals that thought that they could be transcendent. So did you always know that would be the title of this book? What's the story of the title?
2: Um, The answer is yes and no. So I started with the title Transcendent Kingdom and um, I wanted that to be the title, but from my first book, Homegoing, I knew that titles don't always last, they don't Mm. always stay. Uh Um, So I was kind of tentative about telling people that that was the title. Um, in fact, I had read from this book um, for the first time while I was still in progress when I had a fellowship in Berlin um, and I I was so cagey about it that I didn't reveal the title. Um, um, but then, you know, as I wrote, it's just started to feel more and more appropriate. Like it felt like it was it was sticking. Um, and so I couldn't I couldn't imagine a different title for it and decided that that it was the right one.
0: And yeah, one thing I kept thinking reading the book is that it feels so much like a memoir. I would have to stop and remind myself, oh, this is a novel. This is not a memoir. Was that intentional? Uh, You know, did you know going in you were going to write it that way?
2: It was intentional. I wanted it to have the feel of memoir. And I read a lot of what I would call like science. Memoirs I love types. science memoirs. We'll have to,
1: later we will exchange lists. I love yeah. science memoirs.
2: I do too. And I, I was trying to think of books that n- weren't necessarily written by scientists, but had uh, scientific inquiry at its heart um, while also trying to blend uh, just questions about what it meant to be alive, you know, how to live a good life, what their lives might look like. Um, so I found memoir to be really helpful in that, in that regard.
1: And as you, there's obviously many points of similarity between your life and Gifty's life. Did you think about not doing that, making you more different, or you wanted to draw on mm-hmm. your own experiences?
2: Well, there were things that I knew that I wanted to draw from, from, the, from the beginning, particularly the religious aspects of the book. Um, I grew up quite similarly to Gifty in the Pentecostal church um, in Alabama, and it's a space that I am drawn to in my writing quite often, but I had never gone as in-depth as Transcendent Kingdom, obviously. Um, but I knew that I wanted to, to talk about that. I also knew that I wanted to set it in my hometown, um, mostly just because I don't read a lot of books that are set in Alabama, um, or p- particularly in Huntsville, Alabama, which is a, a really interesting city. Um, and so it felt like an opportunity to explore those two aspects um, of my personal life through fiction.
1: Well, we're going to ask you to read a passage, which is quite long, but it, like we just couldn't cut it down because there's <laughs> so much going on there. We thought it'd be nice to have the whole thing. Sure. And this is one of the most significant of Gifty's reflections on both religion and race and her family. Sure, no problem.
2: What I'm saying is I didn't grow up with a language for a way to explain, to parse out My self loathing. I grew up only with my part, my little throbbing stone of self hate that I carried around with me to church, to school, to all those places in my life that worked, it seemed to me then, to affirm the idea that I was irreparably, fatally wrong. I was a child who liked to be right. We were the only Black people at the first Assemblies of God church. My mother didn't know any better. She thought the God of America must be the same as the God of Ghana, that the Jehovah of the white church could not possibly be different from the one of the black church. That day when she saw the Marquis outside asking, do you feel lost? That day when she first walked into the sanctuary, she began to lose her children who would learn well before she did that not all churches in America are created equal not in practice and not in politics. And for me, the damage of going to a church where people whispered disparaging words about my kind was itself a spiritual wound, so deep and so hidden that it has taken me years to find and address it. I didn't know what to make of the world that I was in back then. I didn't know how to reconcile it. When my mother and I made prayer requests for Nana, did the congregation really pray? Did they really care? When I heard the gossip of those two women, I saw the veil lift and the shadow world of my religion came into view. Where was God in all of this? Where was God if he was not in the hushed quiet of a Sunday school room? Where was God if he was not in me? If my blackness was a kind of indictment, If Nana would never be healed and if my congregation could never truly believe in the possibility of his healing, then where was God? My journal entry from the night I heard Mrs. Morton and Mrs. Klein talking, Dear God, please hurry up and make Buzz better. I want the whole church to see. I knew even as I was writing that entry that God didn't work that way, but then I wondered How exactly did he work? I doubted him and I hated myself for doubting him. I thought that Nana was proving everyone right about us and I wanted him to get better, be better because I thought that being good was what it would take to prove everyone wrong. I walked around those places, pious child that I was, thinking about my goodness as proof negative. Look at me, I wanted to shout. I wanted to be a living theorem, a Logos. Science and math had already taught me that if there were many exceptions to a rule, then the rule was not a rule. Look at me. This was all so wrong-headed, so backward, but I didn't know how to think any differently. The rule was never a rule, but I had mistaken it for one. It took me years of questioning and seeking to see more than my little piece. And even now, I don't always see it.
1: This seems like one of the really most powerful articulations of, of kind of Gifty struggling with so many of the elements of the book. I mean, it's so complex. There's so much happening there. Just among other things, like I, that, there are so many poignant moments when Gifty thinks, well, what if? What mm-hmm. if my mother had stayed in Ghana? Would she be this, this comfortable woman in her body like my aunt? What if, God, what if Nana hadn't broken his ankle? What if that careless doctor hadn't, hadn't given him that medication? Mm. You know, what if, what if, what if? And what if my mother hadn't gone to this church? What if she'd yeah. gone to a different church? And, and Gifty struggled to like the science, the religion, to make sense out of what's happening to her there. Mm. When you look back on that, what were you aiming to achieve or, or to illuminate about Gifty at that point?
2: Yeah. um, Well, I think so much of this book is, as you're saying, a question of these like crossroads um, where if something, if a different choice had been made, Gifty's life would have been entirely different. Um, And we think not just of, you know, if her mother hadn't come to America, what would her life have been? Yes,
0: that's what Elizabeth was saying. Yeah. was it the right choice? Like she ended exactly. up with a lab at Princeton, so how could it not be the right choice? But at the same right. time, she lost her brother, was it?
2: And she lost her father. And her father. And she lost her father. It's Yeah, it's true. There's something, you know, obviously the things that you gain from making choices like this to send your kids to better schools, to live in the, in the neighborhood that is going to have the better schools, to move to America, um, those those things that they gain are really quantifiable, you know, more opportunities, a foothold in the middle class, you know, opportunities to go to better um, colleges. But then the things that are lost, I think, are often ineffable. And for gifty Um, her life is so informed by all of this isolation. You know, she doesn't have community around her. Um, She doesn't have family around her. She doesn't have other Black people around her. And finally, she loses her brother and her father. Um, And in some ways, she loses her mother too, as her mother becomes more and more emotionally distant. Um, And so, you know, you have to weigh these losses against all of the the gains, all of the things that Gifty has. And I don't know if you asked her, would she say that she would trade one Mm -hmm. thing for the other. Obviously, she loves her career. She's really happy with what she's done. She's very successful. Um, but I can't imagine that Gifty sitting there in the church kind of contemplating her life and what it has become is not aware of the kind of the wreckage, you know, all of this trauma that she has had to carry with her because of the choices that other people have made for her.
1: Well, I think it's at the very beginning. She says, we were four, then we were three, then they were. we were two, and now it's me. Yeah. And you just feel her, it's slipping from her grasp. Yeah. Well, and then there's the crossroads of the religion too, where she's sort of, am I going to go science? Or am I going to go faith? And she, wherever she is, she's seeing the other way.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. She, she's, I think, a character who's pretty who's pretty open to believing a lot of things and kind of mm. thinks about belief as being this kind of spectrum where you can dip in and take the tools from whatever you need in order to um, make your life one that you can be proud of. Um, and I think part of this comes from the fact that she herself believed as a child so fervently. Yes. And she's not really willing, I think, to abandon the child that she was just because she has turned to science um, but I think the other part of it, the more important part, is that um, belief and faith is kind of this love language between her and her mother. Yes. They are the ways that they oh, relate to oh, each other. Oh, when she
1: says, I looked around and I realized I didn't have a copy of the Bible, and yeah. I ran, and she just ran out to get one for her <laughs> mother. I mean, oh, yeah. so heartbreaking. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's how these two women have been able to relate to each other. And for for a pair of people who have so much so much trauma behind them so much difficulty communicating who don't seem to understand each other on these really kind of intimate levels um if Gifty were to abandon faith entirely it would be it would be the last bridge you know there wouldn't be Mm. a way to kind of get to her mother without this I think she holds space for that mostly because she wants to keep her mother in her life and, and kind of stay connected
0: All right, well, we have a lot of questions from listeners, and we want to talk about the amazing ending to this book. So we will take a break and be right back. Post your job for free at LinkedIn.com slash Gretchen. That's LinkedIn.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, we got many questions from listeners. Um, a lot of people had questions about the ending. It feels like such a specific choice. So we want to know why you chose to end that way. And I'll just tell everyone it's you flash forward and um, Gifty's life is very different than it is in most of the books. So talk about that.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't always know that that was going to be the ending in a previous draft. It actually ended before that chapter. So it just ended with gifty in the car after that drive to San Francisco, kind of thinking about what to make of this situation with her mother. Um, and then it just kind of ended. And I shared it with a few of my early readers, and they were all like, this is not satisfying, <laughs> um, which I which I understood and, and agreed with. And so the next thing that came to me was to have this moment where you get to see just a little glimpse um, of what has become of Gifty um, and her relationships, um, particularly her relationship with Han and with her mother. And I felt like it was the only resolution that I could think of that wouldn't give too much of the process that Gifty goes through in order to heal um, Mm. away. It wouldn't give all of that away, um, but you would still get some, some sense of closure, some sense of understanding what had become of her mother, which I think is pretty important. So I wanted it to feel kind of like a like a little coda, you know, not not necessarily something that was complete, but that allowed you to have this understanding of the resolution that Gifty and her mother had come to.
1: And was it always clear to you that that was kind of her fate as a character?
2: Yeah, that much was clear to me. I, I always sensed Gifty to be this character who was going to end up, the way that I've been describing it in my head is like, Um, Like that last pose in yoga, where you're just kind of like sighing on the ground. Like that's, that's where I think Gifty is ultimately, you know, she's, um, she's come to a place where she understands that she's not going to get to answer all of these questions that she wants to answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think just the pursuit of the the answers has become satisfying enough to her that she can just kind of like lay back and sigh um and that's that's the feeling i wanted well you do have a sense
1: throughout the novel that she's very resilient and she's very reflective mm-hmm. and grasping towards greater self-knowledge even if she often is doesn't seem to have that much self-knowledge she's she's at least trying yeah yeah and here's yeah. an interesting comment from grace um on the the subject of the ending Grace said, Jesse makes the reader feel in control of the narrative by giving connections and revelations that Gifty, as narrator, seems oblivious to. Gifty's invulnerable facade with others has made her fairly unaware of herself. For example, Mm -hmm. Gifty hasn't yet made the connection between her limping mouse in her Stanford lab and her brother Nana's limping from his injury. At the end of the book, one feels that Gifty has just begun to change. The book ends as her transformation begins. Instead of culminating with Gifty transcending her former self, as many narratives tend to do with their protagonists. So that's interesting because it is sort of that leaps you forward. Without Uh,
2: a total resolution. Yeah, Yeah. totally. I love that reading. Thanks to Grace. Yeah, yeah, I think that Gifty is a character who's like incredibly, she's she's unreliable yes. but only because she doesn't really yes. know herself <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so there's so much that she that she can't say because she won't look at herself she like won't look within to see what is true just about what she's feeling and experiencing there's that moment earlier in, in the novel where she says um, that she went into her into this field because it was the hardest thing you yes. could do yes. yes, and like okay maybe that's true <laughs> yes. but also we know that she went into it because she has this very personal connection to it she wants to know what happened to her brother um, so she there's always these little moments like that where she's telling us something that's like almost true, but not quite, and it's mostly because she's put these walls up around all these places in her life that hurt, um, yes. that she can't look at, that she doesn't want to touch. So I think when we see her at the end, Grace is right. She's finally kind of starting to, to, to take a look. You know, she's starting to heal.
1: Well, and I was very struck by the moment where the, Gifty does articulate, she said, could science get a brother to set down a needle? Could it get a mother to get out of bed? And I was like, Whoa. Yeah, Yeah. that's it, you know, underline. Because you weren't sure that she did get that.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And Rebecca had an interesting question about the ending. She says, I've been thinking about the parallels between Gifty and her mice and God and Gifty's family. At the end of the novel, does Gifty come to conceive of God as a force that is sometimes actively cruel and sometimes actively benevolent as Gifty can be with her mice? Or does Gifty come to think of God as more of an omnipresent force that doesn't interfere with scientific laws and the affairs of humans?
2: That's really interesting. I think that the place that Gifty arrives is this understanding. I think of the line that she borrows from her teacher who says, um, I believe that God made the stars and we're all made out of stardust Mm. um, to be the place where Gifty kind of comes to that not that God is not like involved in her science, but that he sets things into motion um, and then we make of it what we will. The rest of it is up to us. So I think that's the way that she kind of holds space for for both God to exist and for the work that she does to still have meaning um, beyond him. So he's not like a... Um, a puppeteer moving mm-hmm. the strings of their day to day lives, but uh, he started the clock and and left it to us.
1: But it's interesting because when the teacher says that first, she noticeably reacts and is kind of scornful, right? In the moment, yeah. or is laughing.
2: That's interesting. But then she she says it to Anne yes, later on. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So you know that it like it resonated with yes. her on some level. She just didn't quite see it at the time. Yeah.
1: It's interesting to see what she returns to over and over again, like that first image of the crazy man. Here's the crazy man. And Mm -hmm. he keeps appearing Mm -hmm. um, throughout, which maybe is also what makes it like a memoir where you have these images and don't even really work them out in your head. And yet you can't get them out of your head.
0: Yeah. yeah. One of the most remarkable things about the book is its many highly developed concepts, faith, religion, race, immigrant experience, depression, addiction, science. I mean, it covers everything. Gifty also reflects on several failed relationships. And then at the end, once she's resolved the mice experiment, she and Han finally come together. So I was just wondering if you felt like she needed to see the mouse walk away from the lever before she could sort of heal and connect with Han. Were those things
2: related? Mm, I love that. You know, I don't think that I had thought about it in those terms, but um, hearing that, I do think that part of what made Gifty's relationship with Han successful is that he's the first person who can relate to her on the level of this research. Yes. And so, you know, all of her previous relationships, she avoids talking about Nana. Um, If she does talk about him, it becomes this kind of wall that she won't move past. Um, It's the end of her friendship with Anne. It's the end of her um, relationship with Raymond. Um, and I think the way that she gets around it with with Han is that she can always talk about Nana by talking about her research. Mm, yeah. um, because in in her head, I think even though she never articulates it, there is this way that she's understanding the work, understanding the, the trials of her mice um, as being connected to the trials of her brother. And so I love that idea that the fact that, that she gets to see this mouse press the lever and walk away um, also releases something within her. Now she has, again, this language with which to communicate mm-hmm. to Han about what she's gone through, what she's seen. And it's the first time, I think, that she, that she really does that.
1: Well, and you get the sense that it's they're like it's happening over such a long period of time that she's sort of yeah. warming up to him or learning to trust him almost without even speaking to him. Just mm-hmm. but it's interesting though that he kept turning the the temperature down in the lab. I was very distressed <laughs> by that for some reason. I like for a long time it was hard for me to think of him as being a good guy because I was like. I don't know why he keeps turning down the
2: temperature in the lab. <laughs> the age old oh, battle so between funny. men and women. Yeah, I know. I was like, exactly. Gifty's cold. <laughs> exactly. Gifty is cold. Although I don't know if she ever tells him that, she, yeah. that she's cold, you know, it's yes. just a silent war, right? She'll, right. she'll turn it up and he'll turn it down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and as Elizabeth was just saying,
1: you deal with so many big themes and also all of these sort of subcultures like neuroscientists, the world of Ghanaian immigrants. um, And here, this is an interesting comment from uh, a listener who identified, Kathy said, I am an associate professor of sociology, and my areas of interest are religion, gender, and immigration. So the book really resonated with both my research and my faith journey as a Catholic feminist. Jesse writes so poignantly and with profound respect about Gifty's struggles with her faith. I'm going to recommend this book to the students in my Introduction to the Sociology of Religion course, because so many of them have a hard time grasping how a person can continue to have faith when science can answer so many questions. Yet science and our contemporary society fall short in providing satisfactory explanations for why so much violence, suffering, and injustice continues. I particularly like the following passages. Okay, so Kathy quotes two passages, which I have to say, I bark too because they're so beautiful, so I'm going to read them. Mm. So she quotes, when it came to God, I could not give a straight answer. I had not been able to give a straight answer since the day Nana died. God failed me then so utterly and completely that it had shaken my capacity to believe in Him. And yet, how to explain every quiver, how to explain that once sure-footed knowledge of His presence in my heart. And then she quotes another one, and even Elizabeth, we're just talking about this. Gifty says, when I watched the limping mouse refuse the lever, I was reminded yet again of what it means to be reborn, made new, saved, which is just another way of saying of needing those outstretched hands of your fellows and the grace of God. That saving grace, amazing grace, is a hand and a touch, a fiber optic implant and a lever and a refusal and how sweet, how sweet it is. And I mean, those seem to go sort of to the heart of the book in a way,
2: too, yeah, they definitely do. I think I think it's more of that place that Gifty is slowly kind of arriving at, where she's starting to understand, starting to accept that there are so many things that she will never really have clear, concrete answers for, that there are so many places that science kind of fails her. Um, and and that in those failures, in those gaps, what else fills that space? Um, and for so much of her life, it was faith. It was God. Um, and so I think she's very, very willing to just to kind of allow, allow that understanding to permeate the rest of her life.
0: And it goes to, I think, why the book resonates with so many people, because like Kathy described herself as a Catholic feminist. I think a lot yeah. of people struggle with you know, their faith and how it fits into modern society. Yeah.
1: Another thing that a lot of listeners picked up on was the sort of the the Ghanaian immigrant experience. Of course, in the United States, so many people have their own version of the immigrant experience. And one place where it really stood out is uh, Nana's funeral and Mm -hmm. how their father sent the funeral clothes and he has a funeral and Gifty's mother said, well, he did a good job. And I was like, wow, that moment of third party engagement took me aback. But then also how sad it was that, their mother threw this, you know, rented out this hall, yeah. but then it was only half full because so many people who were throwing themselves at Nana when he was a successful basketball star and pulling him here and pulling him there didn't come and abandon him and, and the family. Yeah. It really captured that feeling of trying to do it your way in this inhospitable environment and kind of trying to cling, like uh, her talking about the clothes that were yeah. sent. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, it is. And Gifty refers to her mother at some point as a, as a pioneer Yes, um, and thinking about immigrants as pioneers, you know, mm-hmm. where you do have to kind of figure out how to carve out space for yourself in this new place, given all of the kind of socio-political factors of this new place, but also given a lack of community. And I think one of the things that really deeply informs this family um, is their isolation. You know, they didn't end up moving to a place like the Bronx in New York that right. is full of Ghanaians. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they moved to Huntsville, Alabama. Now, why were they now? I can't remember. Why did they end up there? There was a reason. It was because she had a cousin who yes. was studying at the university there. And yes. so it was her linkage to this place to America and then she just kind of stayed and I think that's how a lot of immigrants end up in the place where they are you know yeah. you hear somebody's there you know that person you go and suddenly a little more and a little more and a little more
1: isn't that what happened with our family Elizabeth? didn't our great-grandmother like end up someplace because her brother was there it was like right. in the middle of Nebraska yeah. and I mean I think it was just almost yeah, arbitrary
0: where else would you go I mean but
2: exactly you want to know someone but like why was he there who knows yeah you know? right right yeah
0: coming up a reader asks about yas process but first this break robert half research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring if you have open roles chances are you're feeling this too that's why you need robert half Andrea had a question about process. She said, I would like to ask the author how she conducts her research to write in details about such different topics as neuroscience, evangelical Christianity in the South, and addiction science. I'm impressed with the breadth and depth of her understanding in so many areas. Well, we know you said the evangelical Christianity is you grew up that way. So you had that deep knowledge.
2: Yeah, that was a that was first hand knowledge. Um the neuroscience actually came because of my friend, my dear friend from Alabama is herself a neuroscientist. Um and she studies this phenomenon, the the neural pathways of reward seeking.
1: Mm. Handy. Very very convenient. <laughs> She's your childhood friend, wisely. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Um and she was really kind enough to let me tour her lab and sent me in the right direction toward, you know, books and articles and things that I might find useful. Um, so that was helpful there. And then for the addiction stuff, you know, around the time that I started writing this, and even still in the news, we were seeing yes. so much reporting around the opioid epidemic um, and what it has been doing to, uh, to America. Yeah. Um, and I found that reporting so interesting and really nuanced and sensitive and, you um, just, you know, kind of had this willingness to kind of investigate addiction as a healthcare issue, was able to kind of think about the role of pharmaceutical companies in creating this problem. I was just really, really fascinated with a lot of what I was reading at the time, and that was making its way into the work.
1: Well, one of the things that's so haunting is how, how carelessly the doctor gives these powerful painkillers. To Nada, who doesn't even seem that like distressed. I mean, it's, you know, he's like an athlete that's chomping at the bit to get out there. And you think this is this is serious stuff. I mean, don't just pass this out. Yeah, exactly.
0: But I kept thinking, you know, would he have become an addict some way because it was in his genetics or something?
2: Yeah, it's possible, you know, you, you never know. That's part of the question that Gift is trying to ask. You know, there are some people who are more given, um, you know, who knows how, how you come to it, but yes. once you do come to it, there are some people who are more given to um, continuing to take it. There's a really great book called uh, Drug Dealer MD by mm. Dr. Ann Lemke, who I think is a doctor at um, Stanford actually, Um, but that also investigates the role of uh, kind of careless prescriptions in creating this epidemic.
1: Um, Well, so I wonder, maybe you're kind of drawn to research to write your novels because I read I loved Homegoing and I assume you had to do a huge amount of research to do Homegoing because so much of it is historical. Um, But it's a very, very different kind of novel. So maybe for people who haven't read it, explain its structure and, and scope. It's not the intimate deep look into one person's psychology the way this is did you really want to just like kind of shake yourself up and have a different artistic uh challenge like how how, because they are very very different
2: They are very different. I think from a craft perspective, they're about as different as two books can be. (laughs) Um, Yes, Homegoing is a novel that follows the family lineage of two half sisters born in the Gold Coast in the 18th century. Um, One becomes the wife of the British governor of the Cape Coast Castle, which is um, a fort where enslaved people were kept before being sent to the Americas. Um, And the other is herself kept in that castle before being sent to America as an enslaved woman. Um, And the novel moves down the line generation after generation ending in the present Um, It's in the third person, it has 14 point of view characters, it covers about 250 years of history, Um, it's a very kind of maximalist book in a lot of ways. Many countries. Many countries, many time periods, many subject matters, many points in history. Male characters, female characters, old characters, young characters, yeah. Exactly. Um, And by contrast, Transcendent Kingdom is so much more intimate. You know, it's one woman's thoughts. It's in the first person. um, So I'm really limited to what Gifty herself can see or feel or hear or remember. Um, And it covers only about, you know, 30 years of history. It's, um, It's far more intimate. It's one family. And I think when I started it, I wasn't thinking... I wasn't kind of articulating to myself that I wanted to do something completely different. Um, But I think in hindsight, part of what made me comfortable with writing Transcendent Kingdom after the huge success of Homegoing was the fact that it had such new concerns mm-hmm. that I couldn't even compare the books mm-hmm. for myself, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so it gave me this kind of freedom to just experiment and try something different and um, not be beholden to, to that success that I had had before and just kind of allow myself to be a little free. So I think it, it, there was something at work there of trying to kind of turn the corner and write something new.
0: That's interesting. You're like protecting Mm. yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: So, yeah, before we let you go,
1: we love to ask anyone we talk to if they have a Try This at Home suggested that they would suggest for our listeners, just something that would make people happier, healthier, more productive or more creative, just a concrete thing that they could do starting tomorrow. Do you have any ideas?
2: Sure. Um, well, you, Gretchen and Elizabeth have been able to witness my dog. Yeah. Here. So my, <laughs> my advice is for dog owners. This is actually my first time um, get, having a pet ever. I like begged my parents for a dog my entire childhood um, and they never acquiesced. <laughs> so I finally got one on my own. Oh, um, that's and something, so nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yay. yeah. When? How old is your dog? Um, She's, um, she's a year and a half oh, now. Oh, this is new. She, she's still young. She's still quite young. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and really high energy. And something that my partner and I have found to be really helpful and life-changing and something you should all try is clicker training, which I had never heard of before this. Oh, I read about this when we got our dog. It's been such a game changer for us. You just train your dog to associate a click with a treat. And from there, you can kind of start to train different behaviors. So when they sit, you click and treat. When they lie down, you click and treat. And suddenly they, like, start to recognize what you want from them, like, what they're doing that's right. Um, And that's been so helpful. So if you, any dog owners out there who are, like, on on your last straw with your dog trying to figure out how to get some changes (laughs) behaviorally
1: because it's it's never the dog's fault it's the owner's fault (laughs) it's always you (laughs) so yeah is there like a book or like a video or anything that like got you to do this or
2: or a friend or there's um there's a great uh, woman on YouTube. I want to say her handle is KikoPup. Okay. Um, but she she has these really great videos on how to use the clicker. Okay. Good. Well, I'll Yay. I'll I'll look it up and I'll put the link in the
1: show notes for people um mm. who are interested in in trying that. I think a lot of people have new dogs right now because
2: of the pandemic. It seems like I've seen so many adorable new puppies mm-hmm. walking down the street. So I'm sure lots of people could use this. <laughs> yeah.
1: And with some older dogs too. I know some older dogs who are not very well behaved be very well trained. (laughs) There you go. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank
2: you. I really appreciate it. This was great.
0: Yes. Thanks.
1: We'd still love to hear your impressions and reflections on this terrific novel, Transcendent Kingdom. Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at Or as always, you can go to the show notes for this episode. This is episode 297. That's happiercast.com slash 297 for everything related to this episode. Remember, whenever it is and wherever you are, there's always a book waiting for you.
0: And that's it for this episode of Happier Book Club.
1: <laughs> Remember to try this at home. Read the novel Transcendent Kingdom, or if you've already read it, read Ya Gyasi's debut novel, Homegoing, which she just described. It's a very different book, but also terrific. Let us know what you thought. The resources for this week... Halloween approaches, and this is going to be a strange Halloween. We all know <laughs> it, but in whatever form it comes, Halloween tends to be a major source of temptation for children and adults alike. If you would like more information about saying no to sugar, you can download my interview with Gary Tobbs about sugar at GretchenRubin.comslash resources. Also, speaking of reading, you can follow me on Goodreads. You can see what I've read each week, mark my books as to read, and you can join the Happier Podcast book club discussion as well.
0: Thank you to our wonderful guest, Ya Jesse. Thank you to our producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com.
1: And if you like this show, please be sure to recommend it to a friend and subscribe to us, at rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Craft.
1: And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward.
0: Gretchen, we're actually wrapping our heads around getting a dog. So the clicker advice was wow. particularly are, wait, relevant. are you
1: really? Because you've sort of been mentioning it. But are you now seriously thinking about it?
0: Well, I mean in the next few months, I think. What? Yeah. Well,
1: okay, we're gonna talk about this.
0: From the onward project. Grutch, I know from my own experience that baby-making is not always simple. There is a lack of knowledge surrounding how to get pregnant. And when you want to conceive, there can be a lack of understanding and resources. Frida Fertility is the only one-stop shop that makes it easier to make a baby with a set of solutions for everything from reproductive health to uh, ovulation tracking to conception aid.